Welcome to the Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast, mythology mashups and odd apologues for young audiences. I am your host, Amanda Louise, moving you through the realms of malicious monsters, meritorious heroes, through the practice of real and imagined magic, shining a light into the darkness, and conjuring something meaningful out of chaos. Here we are, Chapter 7, and almost halfway through our book. Real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect to get it back. Peter S. Beagle, The Last Unicorn It turns out that a very normal-looking tropical island is not what it appears to be. Several tunnels inside the world tree open out into various places on the island. The island is home to an evil chameleon worm with a mechanized, zombified army of unfortunate creatures. It is also home to an ancient race of glowworms. The evil chameleon worm was in the process of removing the princess's heart of flesh to replace it with an eternal mechanical heart when the Viking found his way out of the world tree and onto the stage of the chameleon's drama. He was able to defeat the worm, but a piece of the dragon's tongue attached itself to Moiety's ankle and would not come off. Akeda crouched to examine the oddity. It did not look as though it was hurting her, but it was stuck. He tried to slide it off. It was just tight enough to refuse to pivot over her heel. Moiety gave a slight moan. The woman was not dead after all. The Viking felt hope gaining momentum. She opened her eyes and rolled to the side. She vomited a heave of thin yellow bile. Akeda looked at her blank eyes. Moiety, he called. Princess. Nothing, just a vacuous stare. She jerked like a string toy, stood and began to lurch back into the forest following after the horde of mechanized animals. Akeda followed. Moiety, he called again. Moiety's body gave no discernible response as it continued striving through the forest and toward the sea cliffs. Her unclothed flesh stomped unhindered through thorn and mud, catching itself on low-hanging vines, all the while maintaining its mechanical march. Akeda was going to have to use force to intervene. The bright, beautiful ocean loomed dangerously ahead. Akeda remembered the majestic but jagged boulders at the base of the cliffs. Moiti would certainly be dashed into pulp if she stepped from the precipice. Akeda stepped up behind her and bear-hugged her over her arms, lifting her bloody feet off the earth. She did not fight. She did not resist. She did continue to mindlessly strive for the cliffs. Her body twitched side to side in tractionless gait with calm, suicidal effort. Akeda took his brown wool tunic off to clothe the woman. He had to pin her torso to the ground with his knee as her body rhythmically pushed against the earth, attempting to right itself. He sat down under a broom tree and pulled her into his lap while he considered what to do. The wind was picking up. Akeda felt a rumble that he supposed was thunder. The rumble grew stronger with the rising wind. The island's atmosphere was absurdly normal for an epic. 
There was nothing on the surface that would indicate that it was a cosmic battleground, and yet here it was, complete with dragons, stars, and world tree wormholes, all set against a milieu of normal ocean breeze and common warm summer evening downpour. The downpour. It all seemed so suddenly meaningless. He remembered great warriors who had fought valiantly to win difficult battles only to die weeks later from infections. He also knew well the creeping depression that settled in amongst men after victory. A warrior cannot return to the family farm as a farmer. Wolves do not live in kennels. The warm, mundane rain was relentless. The woman's body continued to jerk mechanically. Akeda looked at her. Her eyes were glazed and her mouth was slobbering. There was nothing in her appearance that he would desire her. He was thoroughly exasperated and wanted nothing more than to rid himself of the annoyance. He pushed the feeling down. He felt very warm despite the downpour and the breeze. The world around felt distant and unimportant. He fell asleep. <laughs> Akeda dreamed he was drifting in a doldrum in a foggy ocean. He was looking for something that he knew was very close. He was trying to propel the boat by rowing. His arms felt heavy and the water felt thick. He was not moving. A ram with horns twice as long as its body surfaced on the water. It ran like a torpedo on top of the water, head down, and splintering the front of the boat, it charged out into the fog. Instead of sinking like a normal smashed boat, the boat shrank to the size of a piece of bread. The Viking stepped out of the boat onto the water and looked down. The visibility through the water was better than a clear day on land, and the Viking could see 300 feet to the sandy bottom. And fish, so many fish. Akeda jerked awake with a disrupted sensation in his stomach. The twitching woman was gone. He had been aware of being soaked, but when he finally focused on it, he realized he was not wet with just water. He touched his hand to his chest and lifted off thick, viscous strings of some unknown fluid, and he flicked it off onto the ground nearby. That explains why he was so warm in the rain. What is it? The best place to hide is always up high. Even the most observant people rarely look directly over the top of their heads. It took thick, warm, oozing mucus to move Akeda's focus above his head, and when he looked up, he saw two giant, glowing, lavender eyes watching over him. The eyes were just the tip of an iceberg, for they were firmly planted in the body of a glowworm that was easily the size of a blue whale. With the realization of the enormity of the surrounding presence, he fell backward into a seated guard position. The creature considered him. He saw his whole defensive body reflected and amplified in the deep black pupil of one lavender eye. Akeda knew that the worm was not an enemy, but he had to ask in spite of himself, Are you for us or for our enemies? And this is a good question. Neutrality is the main symptom of intellectual laziness. The mind is gray, but is not designed to see things in shades of gray. Neither, the worm replied in baritone, res commander of the army of children, I have now come. That's a good answer to a good question. The fight we see is only what is on the surface. There is a deeper cosmic battle going on behind the scenes at all time. The universe has magic, but it also has deeper magic. Those who are enemies are not our greatest enemies. You must be full to overflow. 
the glowworm was indeed overflowing. Strings of warm, thick mucus poured from its body with shimmering movement. The light rippled up and down the wet body like aurora borealis. The Viking had never witnessed anything of such heaving biological beauty. It was, all at once, repulsive and resplendent, refreshing and violent. The only thing a man can be full of is food, Akeda responded. And what will you eat, Viking? The quiet baritone made Akeda's face vibrate. Food is energy and water is movement. Will you eat food that satisfies or will you labor only to drink stagnant water? Yes, Viking, you will be full of what you consume to the point of overflowing. What are men full of? The worldly, war-familiar Viking knew that people are only deluded into the belief that humans are basically good when they live in a prosperous peacetime. He also knew that pastoral time periods are only vaporous footnotes in the tome of the history books. I suppose you're going to say envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Yes, but that is only the tension on the surface. Man is full of love, just as compost bins are full of compost. They're both completely rotten until they're spread out. Just as compost is useless rottenness in a pile, love will not cause any growth until it is spread out thin. In his most natural state, man only loves himself. Most people would say love is a good thing, and the more you have, the better person you are. No, Love is like words or weapons. It is only good insofar as the person and purpose are good. Love in the heart of a natural man is not good because he limits his love for things that promote himself. He seeks out associations with others based on their looks, wealth, and connectedness. Even when a man extends himself to a cause, it is only for the accolades that his virtue signaling accumulates. His love stagnates and festers around his personal status and status symbols. The thing that makes man's love such a deadly poison is his false understanding of it. He believes he has an innate ability to project love onto others. But in his pursuit of self, he stumbles foolishly into and out of covenant relationships, fully believing that if it feels good, it is good. Man's natural affections are self-cannibalistic, stagnation that consumes anything unfortunate enough to fall into it. Well, if that is the case, it is certainly better for a man not to marry. The only thing that coaxes selfless love out of us is to be first loved selflessly by something greater than ourselves. Love is only true when it destroys the self. It is only alive when it is spread thin, causing other things to grow. Love, made manifest, despises the shame and lays down and dies for the object of its affection. Tragically, the natural man cannot love unlovable things, and in this hoarding he remains unlovable himself. Compost does not spread itself. The worm's membranous body rippled with peristalsis, and from one of its body folds it slowly excreted a large oblong capsule. With an oozing tendril, she gently laid it onto the forest floor. Akeda could see through the capsule. Princess Moidy was inside, suspended like a tadpole in a gelatinous yoke. She had ceased convulsing, but the sliver of shame's tongue still gripped her ankle. She was also much smaller. She appeared to be the size of an eight-year-old child. Is she alive? Akeda asked. Her soul is still attached to her body, 
the worm replied, but is only tethered to her as a kite is tethered to a child's hand. She is observing herself from the outside. What is wrong with her? Akeda wanted to know. She is disappearing. Her body is being pumped full of shame, and the only way her body knows how to fight off the poison of shame is through self-absorption. Unfortunately, vainglory is a maladaptive process. The more self-absorbed she becomes, the faster her body metabolizes the shame. What should I do? Ikeda wanted to know. Shame is only defeated by those who despise it. You should be who you are, the worm answered. You should fully manifest yourself. It is the only thing you can do. The opposite of self-absorption is self-expansion. You must expand. Well, who am I? I am a worm and not a man. You are a clay vessel filled with the energy that causes your choices. The worm rippled with changing light. You must smash the vessel so that the light inside of it shines out. Bring out the last of Asgarder's gifts. Akeda pulled out Othan's scroll of poetry, and again, it was an unassuming gift, old lambskin and some runes. It was sealed, and the seal read simply, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Simple enough, and stated with authority. The only way to save the woman is to take her place, the worm stated with simple authority. You are Akeda. Take her place, Akeda asked. Yes, the curse must be transferred to your body. You must take her death upon your body. Well, where is the hope in that? You will have the same hope as any grain of wheat falling to the ground. Akeda regarded the tiny woman in the jelly egg. She was growing smaller by the minute now. She will soon be small enough to fit into the gates of hell, the worm said. Akeda knew what he had to do. He would do the right thing. With vision, there is no free will, no choosing between right and wrong. There is only right and wrong. One choice is right, and all other choices are wrong. This lack of free will freed Akeda to make choices in this situation, when most would have had no direction. There was no faltering for balancing the degrees of consequence. There was only the right thing to do. I will do it, Akeda stated with simple authority. Thank you for listening to this Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast. This is an original story by Amanda Louise Van Stratum. All rights reserved. For more original stories and poetry, including links to purchase text copies of my books, please visit me at sunshinesatellite.com. If you've enjoyed this story, please let me know by leaving me a review and rating in the comments section. I hope to hear from you soon.